Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It is so incredible to me the goodness of God that he would keep such an unfaithful people. Whether we discuss the people of Israel, we have an entire Old Testament record of their constant infidelity before the Lord. Or whether we're talking about our own selves. We don't need a, a book to tell us individually how unfaithful we are to God. And yet God has promised to keep his people. What an incredibly good promise. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, you have promised to keep your people and we rest and rely on that promise. For without your work to keep your people, we have no hope. We have no ability to hold on to you by our own strength. This world and even our own sin is so much more than we can bear, so much more of a load than we can handle on our own. Even Paul recognized that he does so many things that he didn't want to do and didn't do the things that he wanted to do. What hope do we have to do the things that you have commanded us to do if that hope is not found in you? Lord, may we glorify you day in and day out constantly for your goodness in keeping your people. Lord, there are so many reasons for us to celebrate and worship. And even as we look at our own lives, there's so many reasons for us to mourn and despair and fear and be consumed by anger. But all of those things pale in comparison to what you have done on our behalf. We have no ability in our own to, to withstand these things, but you have, you have done the work on our behalf, and we praise you for that. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we celebrate in this Christmas season as we get into December here, Lord. And Lord, we ask that as hearts do seem to be softer and more prepared to hear of the Christmas message that us Christians tend to bring out over the holidays, we ask that we would use that softness and that 
cultural preparation for the truth of the gospel as a means, as an end to speak the, the full truth, not just that your son was born in a manger, but that it only got bigger and more incredible from there. And Lord, that all of that has culminated in our salvation and in his glorification to your right hand. That we do not worship a, a dead God, that we do not worship a man who was killed by the Romans, but that we worship the one who is fully God and fully man and who is reigning at your right hand. God, as so many people are traveling over the Christmas season, members of our congregation going out to visit family, members of other congregations coming to visit friends and family here, we just ask that you would keep people safe on the roads. We thank you for all of the emergency services that continue to work throughout the year, holidays or no, who maybe will not be able to gather together with their faith families as they worship on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. We ask that you would protect them and keep them safe, that you would bless them for the blessing they are to others, for they are willing to lay their lives down for their fellow man, particularly for those in the emergency services who know and trust you, Lord. We ask that you would help them to be a light in their own services that as they interact with people at their absolute lowest days, that they might be able to bring more than just their, their own training and their own skills, but they would also bring the hope of the gospel. Lord, we continue to pray for our governments on every level, that these men and women who lead our towns and our counties and our province and our country, Lord, we just ask that you would give them the strength and the boldness to speak out for what is true and what is right according to your scriptures. That they might lead without fear, for they know that they are leading from your empowerment and your strength. That you might give us the grace to submit insofar as their policies do not contravene your word. And that you would help us to speak up and not be passive in our relationship to our government, but that we would speak up and fight for your truth in every level of government. Lord, this season there's also many who are sick. We just ask that you would bring them back to full health. You know our bodies far better than any doctor, and we just ask that you would bring them to health if they are Receiving medical care, we ask that you would give wisdom to the medical staff who are attending to them. For we know that even in the works of medicine, all of these things depend upon your will. And Lord, Christmas is also a hard, hard season for many, where we are reminded of things and people whom we have lost, things and people whom we have never had or experienced, even things or people that we are separated from. And Lord, as many suffer over the holidays and struggle with the, the feelings of despair and depression and hopelessness, 
we ask that even these might be able to turn to your word and find the word of true hope. That they would not find their hope in whatever crutch they would seek, but that they would find their hope in the promise that we find in your scripture. The promise that if we have trusted and believed in you, then we have a final and an eternal hope that far outclasses anything on this earth, good or bad. Lord, you are great and you are glorious, and we thank you for each one who is here this morning, each one who is joining with us online, and even for those who aren't able to join us because they're working. We ask that you would bless their labor, that they might be able to return to their families, recognizing that they have done a good thing in providing for their families and that they might find a Christian community here ready to receive them and to bolster them up even as they have worked through the, through the Lord's day. God, we commit this service to you. Commit each one here to you. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. few quotes here for you. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. For the cloud of the Lord was in, on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. The grace of the Lord be with us all. Amen. And this one a little different, definitely of a different class. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Those were the last verses of the first two books of the Bible, of the last two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, and Jude and Revelation, and of course of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. The closing line of a book is almost as important as the opening line, and maybe sometimes even more so. That is the line that the author leaves his audience with. What final words does he or she land on? Authors have delayed entire publishing schedules because they just couldn't find that last line. What? How do I wrap this up? I've poured so much labor and love into writing this book or this letter or whatever it might be. How do I land? can probably imagine we are coming to the final words of the oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. That brings to an end our broader time looking at the prophetic pairing of Jonah and Nahum, the two minor prophets to Nineveh. And as I was reading the last verses of these two books, I discovered something unique. 
Something unique about these two books in the entire canon of Scripture. There are only two books in your Bible that will end with a question. There's two books being Jonah and Nahum. And before any of you ask, yes, I did go and read the last verse of every book of the Bible to confirm that there was no question mark at the end of any other book. Jonah and Nahum stand alone, ending in questions. Jonah ends this way. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And Nahum ends, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Jonah and Nahum are both oracles to the same city. Both end in questions being asked by the Lord or his prophet. And yet they end on very, very different notes. Hope and despair. As we conclude our time in these minor prophets, I ask that you would turn with me to the book of Nahum this morning. We're going to be in Nahum chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And then we will run to verse 19. Nahum chapter 3, starting in verse 8 and running to verse 19. Are you better than Thebes, who sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you, the sword will cut you off, it will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. And this is God's word. 
A brother recently said to me that, uh, he said, I cannot read Nahum without Jonah. They are linked in my mind. These two books are and should be intertwined in our hearts and minds. To read one without the other is to miss an entire facet of our God revealed in dramatic fashion through his interactions with wicked Nineveh and the mighty Assyrians. Jonah ends with that question by God, should I not pity Nineveh? And Nahum ends with that judgment. There is no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Too often, people in our day get caught in the trap of judging a person or a situation by a snapshot. We see the picture-perfect Facebook post, and we covet that lifestyle or that aesthetic that they have going on. We compare ourselves and our own failings to that snapshot, and we despair and go, I can never be the super dad or super mom or super cook or super whatever. Or maybe someone drops by your house unannounced to drop something off on, say, uh, 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. The kids are swinging from the light fixtures, and you've been in the middle of scrubbing a shower or fixing a sink, and you wonder, what must they have thought seeing me like that? How must they have judged me? But the truth is that neither the carefully cropped and filtered Facebook post nor the candid, chaotic front door meeting really tells any of the full stories of our lives. And honestly, real life probably falls somewhere pretty squarely in the middle of those two. But both of those do represent legitimate stages of our life. Thinking of those snapshots of life, lots of people who want to criticize Christianity want to pick out a snapshot from somewhere in the Bible. Pick out an element of Scripture where God doesn't look like what they would like, what we would typically put on the front page of a Christianity 101 brochure. I've heard people say things like this. This is the God you worship, one who would inflict this kind of a fate on a nation? They'll pick through and find the, the worst. Now, don't get me wrong. They're picking out what they assume to be God at his worst. God being angry or seemingly unjust or otherwise just unpalatable to their sensibilities. And like we said, Nahum and Jonah end very differently, but Nahum does not represent God at his worst any more than Jonah represents God at his best. Both quite clearly and simply represent God, as he is. Our God is, present tense, wrathful, just, and holy, as much as he is loving and kind and merciful. And regardless of the situation, he always remains all of these things. 
We referenced last week James 1. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And usually, that verse becomes our recognition that all good things do come from God. That's how we looked at it last week. But the last half of verse 17 He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He did not change between Jonah and Nahum. He did not change between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And He has not changed from before the beginning of creation to Today, in December of 2022, our God is the same. At the end of Jonah, as the Lord takes pity upon the 120,000 souls and much cattle in Nineveh, he has this pity and compassion, and yet he is still holy and just. And as he shortly after the words of Nahum, decimates Nineveh at the hands of the Babylonians. He is still merciful and kind. The first three verses of our passage this morning deal with a question. Are you better? Nahum asks, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her help, helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. The city of Thebes was an Egyptian city, and it had some major similarities to Nineveh. Both were great cities, settled for many, many years. Both were shielded by virtue of their placement next to and surrounded by great rivers. They were both virtually impenetrable, cities beyond a sailing. And yet Thebes was thoroughly sacked for its watery watery defenses and the great strength of military might that surrounded it and the nations around them. Thebes was sacked and she became an exile. She went into captivity and her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Her honored men, lots were cast for and her great men were bound in chains. Such a great city reduced to nothing. And who was it that inflicted such wholesale devastation upon that city? Well, it was none other than the Assyrian Empire. It was Nineveh. When asked, are you better than Thebes? They likely would have been, well, yeah, we are better than Thebes. Look what we did to Thebes. We conquered them. We took their men, we took their women, we took their plunder. 
It's recorded that huge obelisks were taken out of Thebes and returned to Nineveh as trophies. We took that from Thebes, we can take it from you. Nineveh would have and did set itself up as the greatest city in the world. And like so many great cities before them, their pride became part of their downfall. But that question at the beginning of verse 8 really got me, got me going. Are you better? I confessed in my exposition of Jonah that it was a real struggle for me not to dislike Jonah. His faithfulness when he was called, his superiority complex over the Ninevites, his blindness to his own failings. Jonah made himself a genuinely dislikable figure in that book. But we had to recognize as we looked at him and his story that none of us really have a leg to stand on to criticize Jonah. We are more like him than not. All of us have issues in our own lives that make Jonah not seem like quite such a loser by comparison. We also have our own sin. But surely we have no such issue if we were to compare ourselves to the wickedness of the likes of Nineveh, right? Remembering that this was being given to the people of Israel, surely God's people, as they read this, when they see Nahum asked Nineveh, are you better than Thebes? They shouldn't have been thinking, are we better than Nineveh? Right? The obvious answer to Nahum's question is, no, Nineveh is not, in fact, any better than Thebes. And the question that we have to wrestle with, that God's people had to wrestle with, is whether we are, in fact, any better than Nineveh. Some of the indictments brought against Nineveh are being against God, plotting against the Lord, afflicting God's people, greed, pride, violence, deception, idolatry. And particularly from our vantage point, in light of the breadth given by Christ to many of the Ten Commandments during his Sermon on the Mount, I don't think we have any leg to stand on to say that we are any better than Nineveh. When Nineveh is asked if they are better than Thebes, the answer is no, and by association, if Nineveh is not better than Thebes, they deserve the same kind of treatment that Thebes received. And that should make us think, what do we deserve if we're no better than Nineveh? What Nineveh was about to receive is given to us in verses 11 to 18. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troop are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. 
Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fence in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. For all of their strength, all of their pride and unassailable castles, Nineveh and the Assyrians, right up to their royalty and their nobility, were to be destroyed and scattered to the wind like chaff on the threshing room floor. The whole last kind of half of Nineveh is a taunt of Nineveh. Their fortresses as easy to take as shaking a fig tree and watching the fruit fall off. Their great and proud and mighty soldiers are like women. Comparison there being that women were not trained for battle in any way. They were cared for and kept at home. And these warriors which trained their whole lives, these were a warrior people. From the day that they could walk, their boys were trained for war. And yet their training, they may as well have been women who weren't trained a day in their lives. They have no chance. And for any preparation that they might make, the result would be the same. Unmendable hurt, grievous wound, and the joy of the nations at their destruction. Remember what we were saying about how we are no better than Nineveh? always enjoyed this quote from Paul Washer regarding our own sinfulness. From heaven's perspective, those who break God's law are vile and worthy of all loathing. They are a wretched lot justly exposed to divine vengeance and rightly devoted to eternal destruction. It is not an exaggeration to say that the last thing that the accursed sinner should and would hear when he takes his first step into hell is all of creation standing to its feet and applauding God because he has finally rid the earth of him. Such is the vileness of those who break God's law. Such is the disdain of the holy towards the unholy. Now our God does not specifically delight in the condemnation of sinners. In Ezekiel 18, he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. But such is the depths of our wickedness, our own sin, that think of the rejoicing of the nations as Nineveh is swept from the world. They have been afflicting nations for hundreds of years, and finally these Assyrians would be wiped from the earth and the nations would cheer. Such is the depths of our own wickedness that we deserve no more. We deserve the same rejoicing over our wickedness being swept from the earth that Nineveh is about to receive. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. 
Are you better than Nineveh? Was Nineveh better than Thebes? Was Nineveh or Thebes any better than any of the wicked nations that came before them? The nations that God drove out and told his people to destroy as they came into the promised land? The answer is no. The wickedness of the world, the wickedness of our own sinful hearts, all deserve to be utterly swept from the world with absolutely no mercy. And they will be swept from the world with resounding finality at the end of all things. We like to downplay our own wickedness. We like to forget that we don't deserve a single ounce of God's grace. If we deserved it, it wasn't grace. We don't deserve it. The only measurable difference between us and Nineveh, between the greatest of saints and the most wicked of sinners, the only difference is the compassion of our God. The only difference between us and Nineveh is that we, God's people, those who have placed their trust in the Lord and who have persevered in their faith in Him, have received the blessing of what we celebrated around the Lord's table today. Should I not pity Nineveh? For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Even for the same city, a hundred or so years apart, the difference between Jonah's offer of salvation and Nahum's oracle of destruction was God's disposition towards the Assyrians. In Christ, we find God's disposition towards us utterly changed from what we deserve. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. As we close the pages of Nahum, maybe a book that we have not been familiar with up until now, and a book that many of us probably won't return to for a little while. Going from here, our eyes turn towards Christmas, the season and its joy ahead. 
We prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate the joy of the Incarnation and all that surrounds the joy of Christmas. Without Christ, without not only the Incarnation, but also the death and resurrection that would come subsequent to that, we would have nothing to celebrate. We would have no joy and no hope. We would deserve only unmendable hurt and grievous wounds and the celebration of the nations at our destruction. That is what we deserve, and it is not what we receive to God's glory. We do not receive what we deserve because Christ has received what we deserve. And we, by an incredible working of our Lord, receive what Christ deserves. We receive life eternal. We receive Christ's righteousness in exchange for our own wickedness. So as we close this morning, I ask that you recognize that it is the work of Christ that has moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It is the work of our God who has taken us from the people of Nineveh over whom the world is going to clap their hands and who deserve nothing but all of the punishment that God could heap upon them for their wickedness. And instead, we receive a glorious hope and a glorious future that we could never deserve. That is what we celebrate around the Lord's table. That is what we celebrate every day that we come here, every moment that we worship our God. We worship our God because he has made a way for us to be saved and to worship him when all we deserve is his judgment. Nineveh is the audience of Nahum, and it is the bearer of God's judgment. And at the same time, Israel is the audience of Nahum, and they are being comforted by God with an oracle of his care and protection. All glory to be, be to our God, for he was and is, and always will be, holy, and just, and wrathful, and loving, and kind, and merciful. Like I said, Jonah is not God at his best, and Nahum is not God at his worst. Our God is all of those things. And how we meet God, his disposition towards us is determined whether we meet him on our own merit, which can only merit us judgment, or upon the merits of Christ. And if we meet him in the merit of Christ, we have salvation and hope beyond our wildest imaginings. Let us thank God that in Christ we have his perfect righteousness and a promise of a hope and a future we could never have deserved on our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
you have cared for your people. You have shown us what it means to have a hope that we could never deserve. You have gathered us together this morning. You've given us breath in our lungs today. And Lord, in your will, you will continue to gather us together to worship you for many days going forward from here. Lord, we cannot for a second forget the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he has saved us, that we do not receive in our own selves the judgment which we deserve, but we receive the promise of a future and a hope. And Lord, if there are those who do not yet know that promise, who have not yet received the hope that you have prepared for them from before all of creation, we ask that by your Holy Spirit that they might see and know that truth. That they might come to you and lay their own lives down before you knowing that you are God and you are good. God, I thank you for each one here. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for the moments when we have allowed ourselves to think that we're superior, to think that we deserve this, that, or the other thing. May our lives and may our Christian walks be marked by humility that knows we come before you only on the basis of the work of Christ only on the basis of what has been done on our behalf. May we glorify you in all that we do, whether we get up or whether we sit down, whether we stay in, whether we go out. May all that we do be marked by a constant worship that we can do these things in strength that you provide, in the goodness that you have given us in the days that you have given us, in this world that you have given us, and that we would do it all hoping in you. We do ask that you would return soon. That our faith, that which we believe might become sight and we might see the very Savior that saved us and be able to worship in truth and in sight And in the meantime, we ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would keep us faithful, that we would persevere in this truth unto the end, proclaiming it to all who would hear. Pray these things in Jesus' name.